Oh yeah, it's Tuesday, and you know what that means, another episode of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you, and I'm glad to have you along. We continue to get fallout from the Houston Astros cheating scandal, plus I've got Northern Michigan audio for you, Northern Michigan Tuesdays, and Mel Kuyper has dropped his second mock draft, mock 2.0. We're going to rock the mock here over the course of the next hour. Glad to have you along. I want to start, though, by asking you a couple of questions. Firstly, are you smarter than the president? How about your governor? Wherever it is you may be tuned in from, whether you're right here in the great state of Michigan, you're listening nationwide, even worldwide with the ESPN-UP app or ESPNUP.com. What about either of your senators or your congressmen? Could you take their job right now? And do a better job than them. Regardless of political party, beliefs, could you govern better than your elected officials? First of all, what's the job of an elected official? Well, it's to represent us, represent their constituents, and to govern, to lead with authority, to lead fairly, honestly, and justly. Now, not everybody does that, but that's their job. That's in the job description. That's what we would like to believe that our elected officials do. What happens, though, when they don't do that? What happens when they govern unfairly, unjustly? Think about that word, unjustly. They fail to bring justice. We all want justice. As humans, we crave justice. When we feel that we've been wronged, our natural instinct is to get back at them is to get revenge. We want to settle the score. We want to even things up. And when that doesn't happen, someone doesn't do it for us, the ones who are supposed to do it, maybe it's in a court of law, maybe it's a piece of legislation. Either way, when we feel something is not justified, then we want to right the wrong ourselves. If the ones who are supposed to do it aren't going to do it, that we feel that it's up to us. We become vigilantes of justice, in a sense. And that's what a lot of people feel right now regarding the Houston Astros and Major League Baseball. Because Rob Manfred, if he was running for political office, he wouldn't be polling well right now. His poll numbers would have dropped significantly here in the last couple of weeks because of how Major League Baseball has handled the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Rob Manfred, as commissioner of Major League Baseball, is in a very similar position to President Trump, to Governor Whitmer, to Senator Stabenow and Peters, to Congressman Bergman. Rob Manfred is in a similar position to all of those in the sense that it is his job to govern fairly, to right wrongs, to bring justice. And he failed to do that with the Houston Astros cheating scandal. He thought along with Jim Crane, that as long as a couple of guys were involved in it, a couple of management-type guys, one that we never even knew about before this whole thing started. I mean, be honest, did you know the name Jeff Lunau before this whole scandal started? I, we, we knew A.J. Hinch, we knew who that was, but no one knew Jeff Lunau. And baseball thought, if we can get rid of those two guys, that'll be enough, this will go away. And it didn't go away, because all reports say, including the commissioner's own report, that this was a player-driven movement. And none of the players are being punished. Now, granted, they were granted immunity from Major League Baseball in exchange for their testimony. So they're certainly not going to go out and say anything that could implicate them because they don't want to lose that immunity and risk reopening an investigation. But that being said, even if you're not going to punish the players with suspensions, what have you, you can still take away that World Series title because it is ill-gotten gain. It is ill-gotten gain. The 2017 Astros World Series Championship, no matter what Carlos Correa or Jim Crane try to say, they didn't earn that championship fairly. Not fair, not square. And in that sense, it's pretty cut and dry for Major League Baseball to step in and say, this is ill-gotten gain. This should be revoked. Now, I'm not an advocator for vacating things, for taking things away. And I'll give you a few examples. Almost 15 years ago now, Reggie Bush gave back his Heisman Trophy. USC had to forfeit their 2004 NCAA National Championship in football because Bush received improper benefits. School boosters bought him a car. 
And because of that, USC was not recognized as national champions in 2004, and Reggie Bush was not recognized as the most outstanding player in college football. Now, did Reggie Bush break the rules? Absolutely he did. And should he have been punished? Yes. Now, what could the NCAA have done? Because Bush had already been drafted by the New Orleans Saints. He was already an NFL player by that time. That being said, because Bush received a car and other benefits from boosters off the field, that had absolutely zero bearing, zero impact on the on-field performance. Now, most of the team didn't know about it. The coaching staff didn't know about it. Yet, they're the ones that get punished. Bush's teammates did nothing wrong during that 2004 season. But because of Bush's actions, they don't get to be recognized as college football national champions that year. Pete Carroll doesn't get that championship and those wins on his college resume, not at least without an asterisk. And because Reggie Bush off the field broke NCAA rules, the on-field performance, which was not affected at all, is what gets tainted. Fast forward a few years later, that 2012 season where Notre Dame went undefeated, and then they went to the national championship, and we won't talk about that. That season and the following season, all those wins were vacated because of an academic scandal, because about three, four players had cheated academically to get better grades. Notre Dame wasn't miking up their players on the field. They weren't using extra mics or stealing plays. There was no spy gate or anything like that. What happened on the field was not affected by what happened off the field. That broke NCAA violations. Unless maybe you want to say that hey, those players wouldn't have been eligible without those grades. Only one had a significant impact on the team that year. And there's still a pretty good chance without him, the Irish would have still gone undefeated, would have still gone to the national championship that year. That being said, in both those instances, and many others, just to name a few, what happened off the field had zero bearing on what happened on the field. Yet it's the on-the-field accomplishments that are null and void, that are taken away. With the Houston Astros, what happened that broke the MLB rules happened on the field, happened during the game, and it had a direct impact on the game itself. It absolutely affected the outcome of that game. And they get off scot-free. They get to maintain the championship. Those players all get to call themselves World Series champions. And is the reality that this is the way it's going to be, continues to set in for players all around Major League Baseball, the more bitter they become, the more they want justice and they realize they're going to have to take it into their own hands. And before I give you your stat of the day, which correlates to that, let me play this audio for you, and it's from Los Angeles Dodgers third baseman Justin Turner, the team that the Astros defeated to win that 2017 World Series. Turner, his frustration is growing, and he responds to comments that Manfred made earlier this week about the trophy, the commissioner's trophy given to baseball's champions where Manfred says, do you really think that me taking back a hunk of metal is really going to change anything? Listen to what Justin Turner had to say. For him to devalue it the way he did yesterday is, is just tells me how out of touch he is with, with the players in this game. And, you know, at this point, the only thing devaluing that trophy is that it says commissioner on it. Wow. I mean, you listen to that, it's powerful stuff, and you can't say that Justin Turner is wrong. Because that trophy is more than a hunk of metal as Rob Manfred called it. The commissioner's trophy, the commissioner of baseball calls it just a hunk of metal. That will mean nothing if it's taken away from the 2017 Astros. That trophy, that hunk of metal, represents an achievement that so many players, so many great players, have striven for and put in time, effort, blood, sweat, tears, what have you, worked almost half their lives for trained for, dedicated themselves for, to earn. And so many of the greats never got to hold that trophy. And it's just some hunk of metal? That represents all the work that professional athletes, professional baseball players have poured into their career, making themselves the best athletes they can be. For your sport, to raise the value of your sport, Mr. Commissioner. And that's a trophy that the Dodgers have come so close 
to hoisting themselves here the last few seasons. And you think it doesn't bother them? That it doesn't stick in their mind every single day? And for you to call it just a hunk of metal? It's disrespectful to the game of baseball, to all those who have put in the time and effort to make themselves great and to make baseball great. And with that, here's your stat of the day. Dusty Baker, the new Astros manager, keep in mind he was not part of this sign-stealing scandal. He is concerned for the health and safety of the Astros because, again, there's a lot of pent-up aggression and a lot of anger, especially from pitchers, guys that the Astros rocked during their 2017 season and cost a few their jobs. There's a lot of anger out there, and there's absolutely reason to be concerned that there's going to be retaliation, such as a lot of beanballs, a lot of pitches thrown at Astro batters. William Hill Sportsbook actually has set an over-under on how many times the Astros are going to get hit by a pitch this season. You can bet on how many times the Astros will get drilled by a pitch. A pitcher is angry maybe he tries to hide his frustration maybe he doesn't it's only defined as hit by pitches whether it's clearly intentional it's a bean ball or not doesn't matter the over under set by william hill is at 84 so will the astros get hit 84 times by a pitch as a team this year in 162 games by the way since they've started keeping track of hit by pitches as a stat only nine other teams have exceeded that number in a single season I tell you what, you can go put a bet on that if you want. 84 seems low to me. It honestly does. Hit by pitches in a single season? You know there's going to be a lot early on. It'll trail off a little bit later. I might pick the over on that. I honestly might. But you can bet at William Hill how many times Astros batters will be hit by a pitch this season. And I guarantee some of them will be subtle. Some of them are going to be direct beanballs. And Dusty Baker is right to worry about the health and safety of his players. So he's asking Major League Baseball for help. Good luck with that, Dusty. You know, Dusty's one of the great guys in all of baseball. I like Dusty Baker. I don't feel sorry for the Astros. I feel sorry for him. Albeit he wanted this job. He wanted to manage again. I don't know why he'd want the Astros job. But that being said, it's a bad place for a really good guy. With that, let's take our first time out. When we come back, I've got Mel Kuyper's second mock draft. We'll break down the picks you need to know next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Mel Kuyper's second mock draft has dropped, and we're going to break it down for you here before we hit the next break. We are going to rock the mock, but first, we've got a little local news to update you on. Last night, the Marquette Area Public School System held a meeting to determine not only the future of one of their logos, but their school nicknames going forward. As many of you know, a couple of months ago, there were some concerned citizens who approached the school board saying that the school needed to ditch their high school team nicknames, the Redmen and the Redettes, saying that it is derogatory to Native Americans. Well, those who were in favor of the nicknames countered back by saying when the school first adopted Redmen and Redettes, it was not in reference to Native American people, but it was in fact a play on the Harvard Crimson. Harvard names their school teams the Crimson, and Marquette said when they first adopted the nicknames, that's what it was intended to reference. Well, that may be true, say those who want change, but around the 1930s, Marquette adopted an Indian chief face as their logo and you still see that face around the native american chief he's still around every once in a while he's been somewhat replaced by a red block m very similar to the university of michigan logo it's basically if you colored the michigan logo red that's what is partially replacing the native american head well a lot of people of course want the nickname to change so marquette area public schools gathered together last night and by a vote of six to one they chose to retire the native american chief head as their logo so now the block red m is going to be marquette sports team's primary logo going forward so we don't know what's going to happen with the red men redettes the nickname what have you but we know that the native american chief logo has been retired as of last night's uh, vote 
by a count of 6 to 1 at the Marquette Area Public School Board meeting. You can let us know what you think. I'm going to have some talented friends of the show here, John Michael Hoefling, Ryan Stieg, Jake Durant, all those guys with a great pulse of what's going on sports-wise in the city, and I want to bring up your opinions to them. So go ahead and tweet us or send us a message on Facebook. Find us on Facebook at ESPNUP or on Twitter at ESPNUP. Send us a message. Give us your take. And I'll bring it up to the guys here throughout the course of the week because I want to get your thoughts on it. I want to hear what the community is thinking because the community, a lot of you have been around a lot longer than the rest of us have. And I want to get your opinions out here on the air over the course of the next few weeks. So send us a message on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know your take on the Marquette Public School mascot and the logo retirement. With that, let's jump into Mel Kuyper's second mock draft. I'm going to give you the top ten, and then we're going to go through some highlights, what have you. Starting at number one, should be no surprise, it's still Joe Burrow going to Cincinnati number one overall. It appears that the Bengals are ready to move on from Andy Dalton. Joe Burrow is the likely choice, and Mel even says in his explanation, he just doesn't see this changing any time here in the next two months. Can you believe we're two months away from draft day? I love it. Number two. Well, the Redskins would likely take Chase Young. And I said last week with Jake Durant, the top two picks are kind of boring because we know exactly how they're going to go. We've known ever since the final day of the NFL regular season when the draft order was set, we've known exactly who was going where of those top two picks. We've known that Joe Burrow was going to Cincy and Chase Young was going to Washington. They're clearly the top two players on the board. Number three is where it gets really interesting. Because that's where the Detroit Lions pick. And there's been rumors that they are shopping Matt Stafford, a very talented quarterback who can't stay healthy and he can't win in the postseason. Are those rumors true? I don't know. Bob Quinn tried his darndest to dispel him. Now, I do want to point out that there very well could be a trade at the number three spot. If Detroit really feels like they can't get who they want at the number three spot, maybe they trade out and they try to stock up Four picks later in the first round, even. Because Miami has certainly been uh, somebody who's had Tua Tungavailoa on their radar. And they're picking a couple of spots back. Well, I think we've all kind of had the notion there's a good chance Tua could end up in Miami. But it may not happen at number five. If Miami wants to get their man, as Tua's stock rises, as scouts start to see that he is pretty darn healthy following his hip injury, they might have to trade up and get him at number three. And the Dolphins have three first-round picks. They would make the case to maybe trade and get that number three pick from Detroit. Either or, Kuyper is not putting in trades. He's not factoring that into his mock draft. Just so many variables there. So right now, he has Tua going at number three overall. And right now, that would be to the Lions. Number four, the New York Giants would select Jeff Okuda. You know, the Giants obviously would like Chase Young. They would like to establish a pass rush. He's not going to be there at number four. Washington is going to take him at number two. So then you have your choice between Isaiah Simmons, Clemson linebacker, who Kuyper originally had going to the Giants. And since then, Simmons' stock has fallen off quite a bit. So right now he has Jeff Akuda, the Ohio State corner, going to New York. Primarily to help out in the sense that Janoris Jenkins is gone. The Giants let him go. And DeAndre Baker, the rookie out of Georgia, hit just a really rough rookie season. Didn't pan out. And the Giants need help at corner. And then going fifth, presuming the Dolphins don't trade up to get to Tungavailoa, they're going to go with the next best thing, and they're going to take Justin Herbert out of Oregon. And the Dolphins still have two more picks this round. They've got five picks overall in the first two rounds of the draft. So even if they can't get up to number three and get to and somebody else does, whether that's the Lions or not, then they still have plenty of opportunities to hit here in the opening couple rounds of the draft. So Justin Herbert is not quite a low-risk pick. I don't think ever picking at number five is low-risk. But you know that you've still got reinforcements coming. You still are stocked up on ammunition. At number six, well, the Chargers, they are in the market for a quarterback. Supposedly, Phillip Rivers is not coming back. Does Kuyper have them taking a quarterback at number six? No, not with Tua and Herbert already off the board in the top five. Instead, they are going with an uninspiring pick as an offensive tackle, Jedrick Wills of Alabama. And I'm not saying that as a knock on Jedrick Wills, but whenever you take an offensive lineman in the top 10, top 15 of the draft, it's going to be uninspiring no matter how good they are. You know, they want a quarterback. They do. And I don't think they should want a quarterback. 
They should be happy that Terod Taylor is there because Terod Taylor is a very consistent quarterback that won't turn the ball over. That was Rivers' biggest downfall last season. You can give him a shot and draft him a little bit of protection, a little bit of offensive line help. At number seven overall, Kuyper has the Panthers taking Derrick Brown, defensive tackle out of Alabama. Now, he's a shifty guy. He's kind of like a smaller version of Aaron Donald, as Kuyper describes him. He is quick. He is a guy who's crafty. His technique is really good rather than raw brute strength. At number eight, Tristan Wirfs, offensive lineman out of Iowa, is going to Arizona. Now, this is an offensive line class that is very top-heavy. This year's offensive line class in the NFL draft is going to be very top-heavy. There are going to be some really good picks in the first couple of rounds, and there's not going to be much more after that. So if you desperately need an offensive lineman, you better be drafting early. Your first and second round picks better be spent on an offensive lineman because there's not going to be any quality ones there later in the draft. Jacksonville picking at number nine. This is where Kuiper has Isaiah Simmons, the linebacker out of Clemson, dropping to. Now, the biggest needs for Jacksonville would be at corner or at linebacker. And the corner need is significantly greater with Jalen Ramsey departing than the linebacker need. Unfortunately, Jeff Akuta is already off the board at number four to the Giants, and there really is no other corner worth taking at number nine. So you might as well go with the best player available, and that's why Kuiper has Isaiah Simmons going to Jacksonville. And then at number 10, Cleveland is selecting Makai Becton, offensive tackle out of Louisville. Now, he's a guy that will fill a need that the Browns have at left tackle, and really they have had since Joe Thomas retired. He's a guy that comes in at six foot seven, 370 pounds. He's right there on Baker Mayfield's blindside, protecting a quarterback who had very much a sophomore slump. That is a home run pick for Cleveland if they can get Makai Becton at number 10. So that is the top 10 in Kuiper's Mock Draft 2.0. I want to go through some of the highlights here in the first round, and that coincidentally leads into number 11 and 12 because they're both highlights. At number 11, the New York Jets select C.D. Lamb, a wide receiver from Oklahoma. I mean, man, the best wide receiver Sam Darnold had to work with was Robbie Anderson, and he's not even coming back next year. Now, Anderson is fine. Darnold is a guy that I've not been high on that being said you got to give him a chance you can't just say here's Robbie Anderson go make something happen for yourself and getting a guy like C.D. Lamb and his speed I think that would help out Sam Darnold and his progression immensely at number 12 another wide receiver there are a lot of good wide receivers in this draft and at number 12 Kuiper has the Las Vegas Raiders, it'll take some getting used to taking Jerry Judy out of Alabama now the best receiver so to speak for this Raider team this past year was Darren Waller a tight end you got to get Derek Carr or whoever's going to be under center for him next year some weapons Jerry Judy is about as polished of a wideout to come into the draft as we've seen in how long that guy can do it all he's a great route runner great speed a pretty formidable size for a wideout for how well he runs that's a huge pickup for Oakland if they can get it done We'll skip ahead to 14. The Buccaneers will take Kalevon Chason, linebacker out of LSU, a guy who was a key part in LSU's national championship this year. You look at the defensive line and how big that could be hit this offseason with Indomitian Sue, Jason Pierre-Paul, guys like that. They're all free agents, and they're not going to be able to bring back everybody. But you take a linebacker like Chason, and he is going to fit in seamlessly to Todd Bull's 3-4 defensive scheme. That's a great pickup for Tampa Bay if they can get him at number 14. Skip ahead to number 16. This is where we take the second defensive end in the draft. That's A.J. Epinesa out of Iowa. Kuiper has him going to Atlanta at number 16. We know Vic Beasley isn't going to be there. Epinesa's a guy that originally he was projected to go maybe number 8, something like that. His stock has fallen a little bit. He just can't compete with a guy like Chase Young. But... He's a guy that weighs in at 6'6", 280 pounds, and he has the ability to play defensive tackle. He can play interior tackle if needed. Epinesa was, far and away, the second best defensive end of the Big Ten this year and really in the country this year, and he's going to be the second best defensive end in this draft behind Chase Young. Let's skip down a little further to number 21, Philadelphia selecting T. Higgins, the wide receiver out of Clemson. Higgins has awesome size for a wideout, 6'4". He has great hands. 
He gets to the ball well. And you look at that wide receiver core Carson Wentz was working with this year. It wasn't good, and it wasn't healthy. You throw in T. Higgins, and hopefully you get Deshaun Jackson, Alshon Jeffrey healthy. I mean, I still I know that's still not great. But then you might have something at least presentable if you're Philadelphia. This is a great draft for wide receivers. I mean, you can get a quality wide receiver maybe into the third day of the draft. But obviously... You want to get as high as you can on your biggest need, and for Philadelphia, wide receiver is their biggest need. Right after them, the Buffalo Bills are taking another wideout, and that's Henry Ruggs III out of Alabama. He may be the fastest wideout in this draft behind C.D. Lamb. Now, you look at the two wideouts that Josh Allen was targeting the most this year, John Brown and Cole Beasley. After that, the third highest pass catcher on the Browns team this past season was Dawson Knox, a rookie tight end. 28 catches on 50 targets this year. You add another weapon like Henry Ruggs, a guy whose pure speed is going to make him an immediate threat. And Josh Allen and the Bills, man, they could have something fairly formidable as far as a passing attack. Now, he's a really interesting one at number 23. The New England Patriots take Jacob Eason, a quarterback out of Washington. I've said on the show many times, I think that he is the best pro-style quarterback in this draft, meaning that if there's anyone that I'm confident will translate to the NFL, at least in some role, maybe have a long career, maybe not a, a uh, spectacular one, it would be Jacob Eason because of his pro-style fit. I thought he'd go much later in the draft, at least the second day. Kuyper has him going 23rd overall to New England. And I tell you what, Jacob Eason with New England, that's scary. I mean, it, it, that is pretty scary. A pro-style quarterback, he looked pretty good at times in college getting Bill Belichick. Whether he will start next year or not, depending what happens with Tom Brady, Jacob Eason absolutely could be the future franchise quarterback in New England. I love that pick from Kuyper and the Patriots. Let's skip ahead to 25. I love this pick because of the family ties. The Minnesota Vikings projected to take Antoine Winfield Jr., safety out of Minnesota, he is the son of that, Antoine Winfield. Minnesota Vikings, great. He was drafted by Buffalo in 99. He played nine years with the Vikings. But Winfield Jr., he was part of that turnaround at Minnesota, a team that went 11-2 and this year. Originally, he was gone. He was leaving when P.J. Fleck was hired. P.J. was able to convince him to stay. Winfield became the captain of that defense and one of the biggest ball hawks in the country. Also had 88 tackles out of the safety position. Now, Minnesota boasts some great safeties with Harrison Smith and Anthony Harris. We don't know what Anthony Harris' future is. He's still not re-signed with Minnesota. He could walk this offseason, and we know how much Mike Zimmer loves safeties who can come up and make a tackle. If something happens with Anthony Harris, look for Antoine Winfield to go to Minnesota, which just feels right. Number 26, Miami, and their pick they got from Houston would take DeAndre Swift. I mean, they have the ability to do this to really address every need here early on because, honestly, who was the Dolphins running back this season? Uh, it was supposed to be Kenyon Drake. I don't know who the Dolphins' primary running back was this year because Ryan Fitzpatrick led the team in rushing yards. Now, you get DeAndre Swift, a guy who was just a monster at Georgia. I mean, it, it, his record speaks for itself. You all know DeAndre Swift. He will be a monster in the NFL, and he will address a major need if Miami can get him at number 26. Work down a little bit more to number 28, Patrick Queen, inside linebacker from LSU. He will go to Miami, says Mel Kuyper. Now, Baltimore lost C.J. Mosley in free agency last year, so you insert a guy like Patrick Quinn, a guy who anchored the LSU defense en route to a national championship, and you put him on a team with 12 Pro Bowlers. Don Martindale, certainly one of the most crafty, innovative coaches in all of professional football, especially on the defensive end, that pick makes a lot of sense to me. Going down a little bit farther, the Packers take in Justin Jefferson, a wide receiver out of LSU at number 30. Well, Aaron Rodgers just isn't getting any younger. You need to build up a round, and the Packers can't keep saying, oh, we're going to draft and develop. But in this case, maybe you should draft and develop because Justin Jefferson is a guy who can step on the field immediately and make an impact. You can't just have it be Rodgers and Devontae Adams against the world. You can't just keep trying to make it work with Al Lazard and Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Jimmy Graham. Not if you want to win another Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. 
At number 31, the 49ers taking Grant Delpit, a safety out of LSU, a guy that was a great safety this year, but underwhelmed compared to what he was supposed to accomplish this season. Now, granted, he won a national championship, but we're talking about this guy as potentially a top 10 draft pick prior to last college football season. We knew he would be entering the draft after this year. We thought he could be going top 10 last fall. Now he's going at number 31 in Kuiper's big board because his tackling left a lot to be desired this year. That being said, he's a ball hawk. He's got great skills to get to the ball, great speed and size. He would be an excellent late first-round pick. And then finally, Kansas City at number 32 selects Cesar Ruiz, the center out of Michigan per Mel Kuyper. Now, he's a versatile guy that can play both center and guard, and he continued to bolster that offensive line. I mean, really, where do the Chiefs have to get better? Running back? I mean, maybe they've shown that you don't need to win with a star running back. In fact, running back by committee might be better, and there's nobody worth taking at number 32 if DeAndre Swift is already off the board. There's nobody else worth taking with a first-round pick. Why not bolster your offensive line, add him to a line that includes Schwartz and Fisher, and continue to protect your most valuable asset, Patrick Mahomes. That is Mel Kuyper's second mock draft. That just dropped. Be sure to check it out with ESPN and ESPN+. Let's take a timeout when we come back. Northern Michigan Tuesdays. I've got some audio for you. We'll break it down next here on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We've got Northern Michigan Tuesdays right here on ESPN-UP, but first, your Sports Center update. Denny Hamlin edged Ryan Blaney by 14 milliseconds to win his second consecutive Daytona 500 and his third in the last five years. Hamlin becomes the first driver to win the Daytona 500 in back-to-back years since Sterling Marlin did it in 1995. The race, however, was marred by a fiery crash involving Ryan Newman at the end. Newman is in the hospital in serious, albeit non-life-threatening condition. Jeff Green and Damari Carroll are signing with the Houston Rockets following buyouts. Tell you what, I don't know what Damari Carroll still has left in the tank, but you can book it. Jeff Green to the Rockets? That's an awesome move, and that could make the Western Conference pretty interesting down the stretch. And finally, a female fan is suing New York Yankees outfielder Brett Gardner after he filed a restraining order against her when she was found to have snuck into the team's clubhouse when they were on the road at Camden Yards. She claims that Gardner had previously been signaling uh, hip-thrusting motions at her from the dugout, and she claims that she is his, quote, future wife. She has never met Gardner, but a restraining order has been filed against her that will bar her from contact with Gardner or his family. How about that? Our end finally is actually about sports for once. Oh, not to mention Drew Brees is coming back. How about that? Drew Brees at his age, he's coming back to a 13-3 and team. He says on Instagram, one more shot at this. Let's give it another shot. So Drew Brees is back, ladies and gentlemen. Let's start with basketball, though, as we transition to Northern Michigan Tuesdays. I've got audio from basketball, hockey, and soccer because we had a new coaching hire on the pitch. Let's start with women's basketball, though. Head coach Troy Matson stopped by, and he recapped the weekend for us. Well, Thursday was very disappointing, uh, just from the effort standpoint in the first half where we knew we had to lock them up defensively, and we talked about it for three days, and thought we were ready to play, and... Uh, and lo and behold, uh, Lake Superior's got 18 points after the first quarter and 31 at the end of the second, and, and uh, put us, you know, behind the eight ball and uh, had a tough time. Uh, you know, we fought back in the third quarter, but you know they played well in the fourth quarter and it shouldn't have been a position we should have been in. And uh, but uh, we allowed it to happen, and that's, you know, you're going to go on the road, you're going to get beat if you allow those types of things to happen. Uh, I thought we played extremely hard against Ferris. We're just, uh, you know, we're putting band aids on. Injuries that need a tourniquet, to be honest with you. Um, we just, uh, our bodies are just, uh, we're pretty much, we're pretty much shot, you know, from that standpoint of being able to put uh, the quality of player we need out there to beat teams or compete with teams like Ferris and probably Grand Valley and other teams like that. Coach talked about Ferris's transition game and how that was the biggest key. No, that's the way they play. You know, we, we knew that was going to happen. If you don't make shots and you turn the ball over, um, they're going to fast break it right down your throat. And, and uh, pretty much happened in the second quarter. They got a pretty good jump on us. Uh, I thought we played, again, I thought we played hard against Ferris. 
and uh, we played a really good first quarter, but uh, the second quarter they got out in transition, and when they're in transition, they finish plays, um, and uh, it's tough to stay with them. I mean, they're playing really well. Um, right now, I'm pretty sure that you know they look like the third best team in our league behind Ashland and Grand Valley, and and uh, they would probably give Grand they gave Grand Valley a they should have beat Grand Valley earlier in the year, and if they played them a second time, it'd be a real interesting game because Ferris is playing that good. Well, we know that Northern is still struggling with injuries and it's not getting much better. No, it's worse. It, it's bad. I mean, I don't know if Erin's going to be able to function uh, to the point where she's going to be able to help us that much. Um, I don't even know if she'll play Thursday night. Uh, Liz Lutz is probably not going to play Thursday night. And uh, Jessica Schultz was in for x-rays on Monday, um, looking at a potential broken hand. Um, but uh, came back negative, but uh, it's on her shooting hand, so she's probably not going to be able to do anything till the game time. And I, I know she'll play, but I don't know how much we'll play her against Grand Valley. Coach talked about the importance of Elizabeth Lutz and what she's able to bring to the table and how important it's going to be in her absence. Where she's at right now, I mean, she, she was at, for a while, she was, she was able to play Thursday nights. Because uh, she gets four or five days of not practicing and rest and treatment. Uh, and Saturdays are really hard for her. I mean, uh, she can't get any lift on her shot. She can't run properly. She can't defend. Um, but we need her out there just because she's one of our, our junior and played in big games and is probably our best three-point shooter, um, but has really struggled in those areas on Saturdays especially. Honestly, I don't want to sit there and try to think that we're going to go and we're in a condition or position that we're going to be able to compete with the number six team in the country uh, for 40 minutes and then turn around and try to beat Davenport on Saturday. I'm going to try to load up for Saturday and see if we can get Aaron some minutes and see if we can get Liz out there on Saturday. And It's a really important game for us to win just to keep separation from the teams that are behind us. You know, if I go and spend all our energy on Thursday night and continue to get people hurt, uh, we're not going to be able to play on Saturday, and and uh, I'm going to take a chance that we can maybe win on Saturday. And it's not going to be easy because Davenport is playing way better. Um, and uh, so, basically, what I'm going to attempt to do, I got to convince my players that though. That's Northern Michigan women's basketball head coach Troy Matson. His team getting set for a tough weekend, albeit a home weekend this weekend. How about on the men's side? Matt Mackerzak and his team swept this weekend. He recapped it for us. Yeah, I think Ferris, we played pretty well. Um, it kind of continues that trend of when we play one of the best teams, uh, especially on the road. We seem to be playing right now as, as well as anyone in the conference. And uh, so that was a positive. Obviously, it's frustrating to lose close games, regardless of how it goes but overall I, that, that one feels fairly positive and then the um lake state game was you know we didn't play very well at all the second half i thought we played okay the first half um but they played out of their minds in, in a lot of ways and um i kind of look at this weekend is that weekend and i think i said this about northwood earlier where it's why even the best teams aren't winning every game on the road and right now we're not one of the best teams and so when you go on the road and you play against two you know good teams and one great team it is you got to be unbelievable to get those wins and so in a lot of ways it's frustrating we didn't get the wins um but it's kind of maybe understandable in some ways so just like the women, two toughies coming up for the men this week, both at home, both against teams, though, they did go on the road and beat. Yep, that was our best weekend of the year, um, going and winning these two on the road. And uh, Davenport, and you know they're probably right now, Grand Valley's tied for first, and Davenport's tied for third. And, um, I, and I think that kind of um, is the, when I just look at the season, that's kind of what I look at is on the road, we've done our job to be probably the fourth or fifth best team in the league. And at home, we've probably been 11th or 12th. And so now we end the year with three of the best teams coming to our home. And if we can flip that trend, um, we'll make the conference tournament and we'll put ourselves in a, in a spot where we're going to have another chance to win a game. And um, if we don't, we won't. And in some ways, we have to, if, if we don't finish the year out well at home, we probably don't deserve to make the conference tournament. So in a lot of ways, I think it's kind of a exciting test. We know we're playing great teams. We know we're playing them at home. We've beaten all three of the teams we have left on the road. 
and if we we now have to be able to carry that over and play well at home coach talked about where the guy's focus is right now it's a weird situation you got basically that three game season to get into the playoffs we you know we kind of this week we we talked about it like in a lot of ways, it's a three-game season. Um, everything that's happened up to this point has led to where we're now in playoff mode, and the playoffs for us right now is a three-game season. And we go, we go two and one. We're in, um, you know, barring some crazy, crazy stuff. Two and one, we should make it. Uh, one and two, we're going to be right on the cusp, um, and then zero oh and three, and we're out. So, um, you know, it's one game at a time still, but it also is kind of that three-game season and. We've done enough good stuff to put ourselves in that position, and we've done enough bad stuff to put ourselves in that position, and all of that's kind of out the window, and now it's, it's literally about just trying to find ways to get a win one at a time. Coach talked about the mindset as far as are you focusing on what you can control or how much attention do you pay to everybody else? We know the playoff implications, but at the same time, um, you know, for us that just means, hey, these are important games, and um, we got to take care of business, and I, I think the reason we probably maybe a little bit have even had the conversations about the playoff stuff is because we have been struggling, um, and and in a way, you, it's kind of almost like you want to reset your focus on what matters, which is one game at a time, and uh, it doesn't do us any good to dwell on some of the negatives, the you know the loss to Purdue and some of that kind of stuff. It's easy to think about that um, at times. And that's, I think, why we we have talked more about the playoff stuff is in, in a lot of ways it doesn't matter. And we almost want to reset on kind of where we're at and realize I don't hate how we're playing right now, um, even though we haven't won as much. I, we got a lot better last weekend. Uh, it was the first time we've improved in probably about a month. Um, the results weren't there, but I saw us getting better again. Um, so that was really positive to see. So it's kind of like let's reset it um, and let's reframe it in the context of, we're, we're, we have a shot, and one game at a time, but none of that matters. And the last weekend is out the window other than as far as learning goes because we now are kind of in this unique position where we still do control our own fate. It's, it's not like we're uh, needing any help to make the playoffs, and we just need to handle it and find ways to win. That's Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach, his team getting set for three games to end the regular season all at home. Let's take our last time out when we come back. I got some soccer and hockey audio for you next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of today's show, it's available on demand with the Sports Pen Podcast. Check it out by getting our free mobile app from the Apple Line Store or Google Play or look up ESPNUP.com and check out the on-demand there. Seriously, if you haven't gotten our free mobile app yet, I'm, I'm starting to lose it, folks. I'm starting to lose it. Go out there and get that app. Get it from the Apple App Store or Google Play. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along this Tuesday afternoon. Don't forget tonight we've got Westwood Patriot Boys Basketball here in ESPN-UP. I'll be live from Westwood High School in Ishpeming with the play-by-play, and it's my hope you join me. The Gwynn Model Towner boys are in town. Approximately 7 o'clock we'll get the pregame going. 7.15 is the tip. In the meantime, we've still got audio for you, that of Grant Patoni and John Sandoval, the new women's soccer head coach coach let's start with the newest member of the coaching staff sandoval's not new to northern michigan though he was the men's assistant for the past year to david poji now he moves over to the women's side to replace sonia bosma he gave us a little bit of an idea of who he is and what his background is like you know when i originally moved to marquette you know wasn't really for sure about what to expect or really how much i'd like it uh, but after about a year you know i realized that this is, this is a great place it's kind of where i want to be and then what kind of happened was just fortunate enough for a uh, soccer position to open up and, you know, was been with the women for the last, uh, probably about going on the last six weeks before it became official. So it's been a, it's been a terrific experience so far. So coach talked about making the switch from men's to women's soccer, what challenges, what opportunities it possesses, what have you. I'd say it's mostly the university and also Marquette was what really prompted it. Um, when the opportunity became a head coach and stay within the area and really cement some roots, you know, I, I thought it was a great opportunity. And then as the time went on with actually working with the women, I found them to be, to be very good, you know, very good, and then also to be very open to, to new coaching styles and to be very willing to learn. So it just seemed like a, a very 
mutual good fit for both parties there. Coach talked about what's different coaching women rather than coaching men. I don't see my style changing so much. It seems to have been staying the same. Uh, one thing that I will, uh, and I might catch a, a little bit of flack for this, but I find that the women are, are listening a lot better at this point. You know, maybe that's per, perhaps going along with the coaching change in general where you kind of have this little honeymoon phase where there's a new coach and everybody's eager to kind of prove themselves and to, to also to be on the coach's good side. But so far, I'd say that's probably the biggest point that I've, I've had to come across. So it's been, a, it's been a good learning experience for them too as well, and they seem to be picking up the information quite quickly. Coach spoke a little bit about his coaching philosophy. Uh, you know, athlete-centered, you know, I'm trying to develop great players but also great people. You know, unfortunately, you know, 96% of these student-athletes are probably not going to go on to play professional soccer, and it's good to just prepare them for the next stages of their lives. I mean, it's one thing that I think that often gets missed within college coaching is also that these student-athletes are probably going to go on through one stage of their life and to eventually become coaches themselves, and you want to make sure that they're a reflection of you in a positive light. Then we talk formation with coach, strategy, style, what have you. You know, we're, we're still working on those things. There, the, looks like the team, based on the film that I've watched, is accustomed to 4-3-3. There's some things that I would tweak within it, uh, but it's really going to depend on this recruiting class that we're bringing in for 2020. Uh, one, another difference that I have found is that the women are committing much earlier than the men. Whereas, you know, on the men's side, I was still doing quite a bit of recruiting for 2020. Whereas a lot of my contacts and the phone calls that I've had put out there, a lot of the women are committed at this point. And I'm getting a lot more emails from 21 grads and now really trying to navigate through that process and determine where we'll be looking in terms of the holes that we need to fill and then what would be, give us the best chance to win on any given day. We asked Coach if he's gotten to know some of the new players, if he's established relationships with them, and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was lucky enough to be the interim head coach for about five and a half weeks. And throughout that process, you know, I, I was basically coaching the men from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day and then switching over right afterwards and being, you know, giving my full attention to the women directly after that. So we've had a, a lot of time to to really get to know each other, to understand each other's personalities and try to, as a coach, it's part of my responsibility to understand their personalities, to understand what is the best way to motivate them through that process. Well, when Coach was hired as the men's assistant back in summer of 2018, he only had a couple of months, maybe even weeks, you could say, to get ready and step into that role. Now he's got a significant amount of time, and he's talked about the time that he has to prep and how this is much more beneficial. Uh, absolutely. It would be much different if I was coming in, you know, and in July, like I did actually with the men. That was a little bit difficult because my first interactions with the men were then immediately into season, you know, whereas, you know, this this process gives us a little bit more time to get to know each other and to find out individuals' weaknesses and strengths and to really determine the recruiting net, the recruiting needs for the next few years, but also kind of determine what's going to be the best way uh, to give us a competitive you know, really to be competitive in the fall. Coach talked about some of the goals he has for the team and for himself in his first season. We, we set goals within each other, and we're just starting within that process. It's a little early just because we're doing our individual meetings next week and kind of determining where everyone fits and, you know, also trying to determine what everybody's plans are for, for next fall too as well. Sometimes with coaching changes, you see some player changes that, that turn over too as well, so... That'll be something that will have to be addressed and trying to really trying to navigate these next few months and determining, you know, getting to know the women's side of the conference. So as terms of goals and et cetera, it's a little premature, but we will get together, you know, within the next few weeks and then also early preseason to go over those goals once again. Lastly, Coach reflected on what he sees right now, what he sees with the group that he inherits. Our underclassmen are really good, I think. I think they've got a lot of potential. I think they still have a long way to go in terms of just the soccer IQ and understanding the X's and O's. But our, our recruiting class, freshman and sophomore year, are pretty strong. So, but we're also, that makes us pretty young as well. So our upperclassmen are kind of limited, but the few upperclassmen that we do have, like Issa Cardoso, uh, Kiara Scanlon, and then also Caroline, uh, 
are very quality players and they're providing some very good leadership for our underclassmen right now. So to determining, you know, losing, you know, Caroline in a few years at that center mid spot, you know, we're definitely going to need a, an additional goalkeeper right now. We only have one goalkeeper. So, I mean, that's always a dangerous game to play when you're headed into the fall with one person behind the stick. So uh, definitely recruiting in that role, going to be looking to, to strengthen our defense too as well. And hopefully adding a few different pieces of some offensive firepower in the offseason. That's John Sandoval, the new women's soccer head coach at Northern Michigan. Previously was the men's assistant coach. Let's move over to hockey to close out the day. The breaking news on the hockey side of things, we knew that seven of the WCHA schools were going to leave. They're going to break off from the conference here in a year or two and start their own group. We later learned that Alabama Huntsville is going to break off as well. Right now they have no intentions of going anywhere, at least no plans to go anywhere. But the seven teams that aren't significant outliers in the WCHA, excluding Huntsville and the two Alaska schools, are planning to form their own conference. We now learn that conference will be the CCHA. The Central College Hockey Association is making a comeback. In a way, it dissolved in 2013 with the Western realignment of college hockey. The namesake, at least, is coming back, and that will be the flag that these seven teams will fly under. Now, there are plans. This is interesting. There are plans to get an eighth team in and to even out the conference a little bit. What's interesting is who that team is. If you remember a few months ago, St. Thomas, a Division Three school in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota, they were kicked out of their conference because their athletic teams were too good. They were too good to make the conference competitive, so they were booted from the conference. There's been a lot of speculation as to what would happen to them. Would they move up to the Division Two level? Would they try going D1? Well, what it's sounding like is there's a strong possibility that they are going to ask for an exemption from the NCAA to move from Division Three to Division One in college hockey so they can join the CCHA and round out the new conference at eight teams. So that's the interesting part about this, that we could have a D3 team in the Twin Cities making the jump to D1, which is not uncommon for hockey schools. All kinds of hockey schools do that. We just might see it come in our area into our conference and what we know up here. Let's get into Grant Petoni's audio, though, because he recapped the weekend. A tough one for the Cats, swept by Bemidji State. Coach liked the effort more Saturday, though, as compared to Friday. I can coach that. Um, you know, like, you can you can fix things, you can coach things, which can't coach his effort. And after Friday, um, like, I don't, like, did the plan work? I don't know. Um, we didn't give ourselves a chance. I can I can work with what they gave me on Saturday. Um, all that being said, there's nothing that can be done about um, the last four games. There's just not. Um, the only way to fix it is this is not just going to get better because it's just going to get better. That's not how it works. You gotta you gotta come out of it and you gotta um, you gotta work. And you know, like I thought last week, um, I was real gruff through the whole week and, I, and we took Monday off and Tuesday and Wednesday were really good days. Thursday was a step backwards. We were quiet. Uh, our execution was just okay. Um, so we, I told the players we were a plus one last week. You know, we need to be a plus five going into this weekend. So we're coming into this week plus one. We had a good day yesterday. We're plus two. Um, to, to, to get back to kind of our season's been that way. You know, the, the start of the year, um, I had everybody's attention and started out the year, whatever we did, 6-1-1. One, and one. Um, and then we hit a slide. And, you know, I kind of warned them it was coming. And, you know, then when you hit it, you don't just come out of it. Like, you, like you have to really work to come out of it. And um, then we come out of it and we're 9-1-2 and two or whatever we were. Um, and now we're back in it again. So... You know, the good thing is we've been through it, um, but the reality is you, you have to you have to work every day to be very uncomfortable in practice so that when the game comes, you're comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, in regards to effort, Coach likes the phrase everydayers. Guys, we're going to bring it every day. Coach was asked, were you working with everydayers your first practice following the series yesterday? I had everydayers. I had a bunch of everydayers yesterday. Um, you know, and... 
uh, it's to the point now, and I, and I mentioned that, I said, we're, we're going to get better every day. And if that means we get better by practicing, that's what my goal is. Um, I'm not, like, it, it, no matter how I good I feel, bad I feel, whatever how I feel, um, practice is about getting better. And it's not about, you know, I'm mad at you, so I'm going to skate you. I'm mad at you, so we're going to, um, you know, smash our heads together. It's We've got to get better every day. And this week, hopefully we can practice to get better. But if not, our conditioning will get better. And that's the choice that they have as an athlete. We can either work on our game or I can work on your conditioning. So now Lake Superior State this weekend. It's a rivalry matchup. The Capo Cup is on the line. Coach previewed that series for us. Playing for a trophy. Uh, trophy's out of the locker room right now because uh, we don't own it. It's up for grabs this week. If you look at their, when the year started, they were picked to finish four, I think. Um, you know, they might even have picked to finish ahead of us. And just for whatever reason, it didn't didn't go well for them. But watching them on video, you just had a hard time kind of understanding why it was why they were struggling so much. Um, and they've kind of righted the ship in the last eight games. They've only lost twice. Um, their goalie's playing fantastic. He's a one six four and a nine thirty. Um, they got they're averaging thirty shots a night. Their penalty kills ninety four percent. Everything those are facts. Those are stats or facts. They're not my opinion. Um, everything tells you that, that they're playing the best hockey of the year, and they have a chance to to move in the standings too. So, you know, they're trying to move as high as they can. Um, they have a chance to, I I believe, solidify for sure playoffs position this weekend. Um, so both teams are playing for a lot. We all know the power play has been struggling here, and we can't seem to figure out why. Coaches talked about how he's practiced every way under the sun. Is that going to be the key for Northern, not just this weekend, but going forward? I don't know how it can't be. Uh, special teams and, and and keeping the puck out of our net. You know, we've scored all year, uh, with the exception of the last three games. You take those out, we've scored all year. And even to start the year, I, I didn't feel like we were going to be But you can't. You can't score five goals a night. You're just not going to be able to. You can't average four a night. We're averaging over three, which is, bit, like, incredible. You know, you average 3.25, whatever we have, you are you should be right where you need to be. Um, problem is keeping it out. And, you know, whether that's five-on-five five play, whether that's penalty kill, um, those things got to improve. And power play has to get better. You know, and, I, and I, I gave the guys a homework assignment today. I said, get with your unit and talk amongst each other on how you're going to have success. You, know, you all know what to do. We, we work on it more than anybody in the country. Um, every day, before practice, during practice, um, video. So like, I think talking to each other is more powerful than being directed by me. And, um, you know, hopefully that that helps spur, you know, nothing that's going to be any different than the things I say to them. But, you know, it's coming from within their own group. And and that's, you know, obviously got more impact than coming from a coach. You heard Coach mention the slide that the team was on earlier. He was asked, does this feel like the one you were on earlier? And how would you come out of the last one? Uh, It feels very similar. Um, You know, the thing that got us in the slide was not respecting the game enough to work to the level required during practice. Because you all want to work hard in the game. Everybody wants to work hard in the game. Everybody wants to have success. Um, it's the day-to-day grind of practice that prepares you for the weekend. And and we weren't respecting the game enough uh, to do that. And that it's the danger when you're on a run. You know, you're you're on a run, you lose one time in seven games. You lose two times in 13 games, you know, so you're having all this success. And it's human nature for an athlete when the coach is telling you, hey, I'm not sure I like this, I'm not sure I like that, you know, to kind of be like, what's he talking about? You know, we're 9-2-1, and one. you know, what's... But, you know, sometimes we see things that athletes don't see on a day-to-day basis, and... Um, the way we got out of it before was working, and that's the only way to get out of it now. 
Northern entered the Bemidji series with expectations or at least optimism that they could get a top two seed in the conference tournament and host a couple of rounds in that tournament. Now it's looking very improbable that that will happen unless Northern gets a lot of help while winning out. So now they're battling for home ice in the opening round of the tournament. Coach was asked, does the focus shift from trying to get a top two seed to having concern about being at home in the first round of the tournament? This is what Coach had to say. We will be at home in the first round of the playoff series. And I personally love that. I love that answer. Short, simple, to the point, and he's got the guys believing it. That is it for us here in ESPN-UP. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. It's my hope you join me then. Until then, we'll see you tonight for Westwood Patriot Basketball and ESPN-UP, WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.